is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. KNX In-Depth, your daily news magazine where we dig deeper on the big stories of the day with newsmakers and experts from wherever news happens. We cover everything from breaking news to the just plain interesting KNX In-Depth. We dig deeper, ask the hard questions to bring you the facts you need to know. On the menu for today's show, sedition. It's not a word thrown around loosely in Washington, D.C. That's why we will go in-depth into new seditious conspiracy charges filed by the Justice Department against 11 people in connection with the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. One of those people, the leader of the far-right Oath Keepers group. What does this mean for others the FBI is still after? The Supreme Court knocking down President Biden's vaccine mandate for large businesses, but it wasn't a total defeat for the White House. And before that Supreme Court ruling, President Biden said the number of free at-home COVID testing kits that will be available for people will double to one billion. But Will the administration be able to deliver literally and figuratively? Hospitals across Southern California feeling the strain of the COVID surge, so much so a local trauma center closed temporarily. This had nurses out protesting today, demanding more from the hospitals when it comes to dealing with COVID and protecting the workers. Some of you might remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. A sequel could be on the way. We'll talk about that. And a new study shows women have a higher chance of dying after surgery if the surgeon was a man. So let's start with the seditious conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers leader and others. With us is criminal defense attorney and former federal prosecutor David Katz. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I was doing some some reading on this, uh, David, and from what I can see, the last time there was a successful uh, seditious conspiracy conviction was all the way back in 1954. And that was when I think it was a group of Puerto Rican nationalists uh, shot up part of the uh, the Capitol. So this is not something that's done often. Why not? Well, it's not done very often because the federal prosecutors would have to prove that someone had the intent to overthrow the government and specifically try to stop government processes from taking place. Of course, that's what happened with the uh, nationalists from Puerto Rico back in the 50s uh, when they stormed uh, the Capitol and uh, shot people. And it's what happened with the January 6th uh, insurrection uh, at the same Capitol, uh, where, of course, we all saw it on TV. We know what happened. They had, uh, you know, they were going to lynch uh, the vice president. Uh, they were hunting for Speaker Pelosi. Uh, they created all this damage and havoc. And more importantly, they were intending to stop the certification of the electoral college vote uh, so that uh, Biden, the winner, wouldn't become the president, but Trump, the loser, uh, would somehow remain in power by their stopping this vote. So that was the seditious conspiracy. There were 10 or 14 people, something like that, involved. They were charged already in Washington, D.C. What happened was that there was a superseding indictment, that is, that uh, this fellow, uh, Rhodes, was added along with the others, and another person from Phoenix was also added He's a weird character. After serving in the Army, he went to Yale Law School, and then he became, um, you know, sort of a a gadfly against the government, against Obama. But then when Trump came to power, um, he seemed to be backing uh, Trump and this nationalistic agenda. And uh, they have a lot more than that on him, though. Right now, they have proof that he trained people, he recruited people, he brought them to Washington, D.C., Uh, Apparently, there are four insiders cooperating with the government who are going to say 
that he had the exact intent to do this, to try to overthrow the government by stopping the vote, by installing Trump when Biden actually won. Um, although he did not himself, uh, this road, enter the Capitol. That's been his defense. He's actually met with the FBI against his lawyer's instructions and tried to exculpate himself. I think that probably did not go well. And there's also some tampering with evidence charges even after January 6th. So for these, and as you just went through it, the feds have have got the goods in order to bring this charge because people have been wondering and lawmakers and everybody saying, you know, lots of the people who were in the building have just been, you know, trespassing or impeding the official process. Nothing rose to this as of yet. But now, finally, we do have this group where it is this kind of a charge. It seems that what Rhodes was doing was that he knew that there would be all these other people milling about and trespassing and kind of used that as cover. But as I say, he had military training. He seems to have been a very smart, astute guy, not in a good way. Um, and he stacked those people. Remember, they kind of snaked in there, and even though there was all this mayhem, they entered in a kind of formation, which this indictment calls stacking. He put together various stacks um, so that they could actually gain entrance. And then the fact that he himself did not go in after orchestrating the whole thing, they're going to say shows even more that he knew it was illegal and that he had bad intent, uh, right? But he was going to be the guy who didn't actually go in. His defense is that he was just there for Roger Stone and other so-called Trump celebrities. They were going to protect them during whatever happened during January 6th, and they were just there in a protective role. But the government seems to have a lot of evidence against these co-conspirators and against him in particular, against this Rhodes, the ringleader just arrested today. Well, of course, uh, David, as you know, the the defense, in quotes, uh, actually goes maybe even a little bit deeper. Some of these people who have already been charged, uh, you know, they're saying that, look, uh, we were there at the beckoning of the uh, then existing president of the United States, and we were defending uh, the Constitution. We were defending the country against, in their view, uh, the illegitimate election of Joe Biden. Does that defense work? That defense uh, does not work at all because they weren't the ones with the right to arbitrate that or to enter the Capitol. They could out, stand outside and peacefully protest. They could send letters or send Internet messages or whatever they wanted to do, but they couldn't actually enter the Capitol. They couldn't train for violence. They apparently had a cache or stash of weapons nearby in Virginia, and they have proof that these conspirators, including this uh, man just arrested in Texas today, Rhodes, that uh, he planned, he had a plan to actually enter those weapons. So this idea that there was some necessity to save the republic, there is something called a necessity defense. That's not what they're going to put on. That's not going to work. I think he's just going to claim that he was there for other purposes or thought that people were there for other purposes. That's what he told the FBI in the interview that his lawyer said he shouldn't have had. And yet at least four insiders, apparently four of the people already charged, have agreed to, as we say, turn states' evidence to cooperate with my former colleagues, the U.S. Attorney's Office there in Washington, D.C., and are going to say that, no, Rhodes knew exactly what was going to happen. He gave us instructions to go in there and to stop that count by any means necessary, including by violent means. And no, there is absolutely no right to do that. And if they put on that defense, they'd be laughed out of court. Criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor David Katz. The Supreme Court rejecting President Biden's vaccine mandate for large companies, but it upheld 
the vaccine mandate for most health care workers. With us to explain the ruling is Elizabeth Slattery, senior legal fellow and deputy director of the Public Legal Foundation, Pacific, I'm sorry, Legal Foundation Center for the Separation of Powers. Thanks for being with us. So this decision today by the Supreme Court has both legal and political ramifications. Obviously, let's start with the legal ones. Yes, thanks so much for having me. So the the court uh, announced this afternoon that it is issuing a stay. So it's putting on hold the mandate issued by OSHA uh, that would require uh, two thirds of private employers in our country to uh, re- require their employees to be vaccinated or uh, get a weekly test and mask in uh, in in the workplace. At the same time, the court upheld a different mandate issued by the Department of Health and Human Services, which applies to uh, healthcare facilities across the country that accept federal funds through Medicaid and Medicare. Why one and not the other? It is something to do with that tying in the the funding for Medicaid and Medicare. You can have different rules where the OSHA mandate is is different. Why the split? Yes. So they come from uh, different statutory authority. Uh, and for OSHA, they that agency is authorized to to issue rules dealing with um, you know safety in the workplace and workplace hazards. And the court held that this. Uh, this mandate, this which is unprecedented in terms of things that OSHA had tried to regulate in the past, uh, is not within that agency's authority. Um, and this was uh, with uh, the the six so-called conservatives on the court and the three uh, the three justices dissenting um, who were appointed by uh, by a Democrat president. Now the other case, uh, it was a bit of a flip. You had the um, you know you might call them the liberals plus Chief Justice. Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joining to uphold the Health and Human Services mandate. As I mentioned at the beginning, this case, this decision, legal and political ramifications, this is uh, not good news, clearly, for the Biden administration. That's right. And one of the things that came up during the oral argument last week, Chief Justice Roberts mentioned Look, this is starting to look like when you pull put all of these mandates together, there's the one for federal co- contractors, the one for federal employees, the one for healthcare employees, and the one for uh, employees uh, in, in uh, within a, you know with more than a hundred employees in in, uh, in in one organization. It's starting to look like a nationwide mandate that did not come from Congress and it came, it came from you know piecemeal from different agencies. Uh, solely by the executive branch. So the the issue at the forefront of this case is who should be setting this policy? Should it be Congress? And should it be the people's representatives in state houses across across the country or unaccountable bureaucrats in Washington? Was there an argument made that Congress and the states, sometimes they don't move fast enough? And is the answer to that, well, this is how the system's built. So too bad, you got to figure it out or, or you don't. Well, you know, there there was some discussion of the the need to act swiftly, but of course, we're we're headed into our third year of dealing with this pandemic. Vaccines have been around for a while. Congress has had adequate time to consider uh, whether whether or not to implement these sorts of um, vaccine mandates, you know, through the normal uh, lawmaking process, and hasn't done that so far. And uh, so, you know. It, if you look at, though, the timing, President Biden made the announcement in September and then that these mandates were coming. And then it took, 
you know, two months for the agencies to actually roll them out. And with some of them, they uh, they stayed their implementation for even longer. You know, the one for federal employees and federal contractors still has not gone into effect. Elizabeth Slattery, Senior Legal Fellow, Deputy Director, the Pacific Legal Foundation's Center for the Separation of Powers. Well, coming up a little bit later, the U.S. and Russia could be on the brink of a second Cuban Missile Crisis. And the new study finds women are at higher risk of dying after surgery if their surgeon was a man. We'll try to find out why. Right now, though, the president this morning said the government's doubling the number of free at-home COVID tests that will be available for people to uh, a billion of them. And the government will also make available free N95 masks. But can the administration make all this happen smoothly? Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Uh, I wonder if you're in the camp of wondering why we didn't drop N95s in everybody's mailboxes uh, a long time ago. Well, certainly when we're focused on infection prevention, and the idea was to prevent the spread of infection, N95s, KN95s, KP94s, all these higher level masks um, would have been a useful addition, particularly in crowded indoor settings. Uh, Now with, you know, Omicron and knowing that about 80% of people are either vaccinated or have previously been infected, I think the context is very different. And we've heard from a lot of leaders this week that it's inevitable that um, everyone will be exposed and infected. Uh, well, uh, by the way, just to be clear on, on that, uh, is being exposed necessarily being infected? Correct. No, it's, it's not the same, right? So being exposed is just being out with uh, someone who is uh, infectious and uh, close contact. But in, being infected means you do have a uh, positive tests. But the good news is that we've seen that, you know, if you've been vaccinated um, or if you've recovered from infection, you are highly protected against severe disease outcomes, hospitalization, and death. So while our hospitals are clearly in crisis as a combination of staffing shortages and uh, people coming in, the people coming in are almost exclusively unvaccinated. So now to the smoothness factor. Do you think this is going to work? I assume you hope it's going to work. We do need more of these at-home tests at the ready because, as Charles has mentioned a bunch of times, you go to the pharmacy, you can't find them. You can drive by and see the lines of people waiting to get COVID tests. Sometimes people go to hospitals because they can't get them anyplace else. By the way, I went just earlier before the show. We uh, update. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I looked at there were two pharmacies yeah. close to the studio. Neither one Nothing. had any. Neither one knew when they were going to have any. Yeah. So, doctor, we need tests. Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, the tests are being, you know, uh, aggressively consumed by the worried well. So we really need to reserve tests for people with symptoms and people at high risk of complications. As we've shifted the strategy in the epidemic, again, from infection control and prevention to a more medical strategy of early treatment, we need to make sure that people who are at risk for complications and if symptoms are identified early with a rapid test or a home test or a uh, walk-up test so they can get the benefits of treatment to prevent them from going to the hospital. Yeah, I, I think you just said something really important that people should keep in mind about the worried well, that that it isn't really a good use of these tests, right, for people to just sort of indiscriminately buy them. And even though they feel great and they have no known contact with somebody who's infectious, just a kind of few times a week keep taking self-tests. 
Yeah, I think that's a misuse of the test. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, uh, exposure is even a misuse of the test unless you're at high risk for complications. So, um, you know, the, my, my recommendations are if you've been exposed, you're at low risk because you've been vaccinated or you're otherwise uh, healthy, monitor for symptoms. And then if you do become symptomatic, that is an appropriate uh, time to get tested. But we've created, you know, a, an industry and somewhat epidemic of asymptomatic people with positive tests. Dr. Jeffrey Glosner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important, more interesting stories affecting all of our lives with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Winter COVID surge straining hospitals across Southern California. Things to the point where there's some shortages. A trauma center at Harbor UCLA had to close for a couple hours. They had a blood shortage caused by the pandemic. We've told you about the calls to go out and donate if you can. On top of that, staffing shortages because of nurses and others out sick because of COVID. The staffing problems are so big, the state public health department has guidelines to allow asymptomatic COVID positive health care workers to keep working. Well, nurses are angry about that. And what they say is that the lack of safety measures at hospitals, they don't like that. They protested around the L.A. area today. With us is one of those nurses, Indra Chima, who works at Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. Thanks for being with us. Uh, so you other nurses are angry. Tell us why. Well, we just feel that it's uh, the, new, the latest guidelines just put nurses uh, at risk, um, not only for the patients, but also for themselves and spreading this virus um, to other staff members, whereas we already are, are so short-staffed, um, we, you know, that's just putting patients and uh, our fellow nurses at risk. So the way it's written, it says if we're down to crisis levels, then yes, you can work a nurse who's positive, asymptomatic, make sure they were an N95, and then, you know, hopefully keep them in the COVID ward, which makes sense. Um, have you actually seen this go into practice, or is it still the theoretical that we are unhappy about? Yes, it's. I believe it's still the theoretical, but we are being uh, told that it's, you know, likely to um, happen because we are in, you know, so um, short-staffed. And uh, we just feel we are, you know, we're working with immunocompromised and vulnerable patients. We should not be putting them at risk. You know, we are are here, we nurses are here to take care of these patients. And it is very morally distressing when we feel that uh, we can't do our job, that we are, you know, we feel that we are there to do. And we're being told other, you know, to do these things that don't sit right. You know, um, it's just um, it's, it's just putting a lot of um, uh, distress on the nurses. Indra, uh, tell us what your day is like now in in the hospital, and how are you holding up? Um, well, we had uh, so many short um, staffing, uh, you know. Sick uh, calls. Uh, we had one of our units had to be closed down uh, because um, half of the staff was unable to come in um, for the night from the night shift, and we um, are just, um, you know, just uh, surviving. Really, um, you know, every day is, uh, you know, it's it's pretty challenging to come, um, and it's it's leading to a lot of uh, people feeling very burnt out, and um, you know. Uh, we're we're holding on, but um, this new guideline is just putting uh, putting like salt on our wounds. It's just like saying, okay, yeah, you're 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 okay to come back and treat 
you know, take care of these patients, which we as, um, you know, nurses don't feel it's right. We talk about, you know, the, quote, mildness of this, right? Fewer people in the ICU and, and from a sheer patient load. Is that what people don't understand? That even if the numbers aren't as high in some areas, you guys are just hit with like a constant flow of patients because there are so many people getting this right now and then the er becomes like the first line for a lot of people i got covid i don't feel well i'm going to go there because i don't know what else to do and that's ending up at your door right right and um, you know the ambulances are you know as, as you everyone has heard you know uh, they're over capacity you know uh, emergencies are you know over their capacities a lot of them having to shut down um it's just the sheer number of patients that are showing up um and, you know, we, we just need, um, we need help. We need, um, you know, if, if um, you know, if you don't need to come to the emergency, you know, if, you, if it's, please stay home, you know. But um, I understand if patients need to come. But um, we, are, we are just mostly concerned about this new guidelines. Um, the, the, we, we, need, um, we need more staffing and um, the CDHB the California Department of Health, you know, I, this new guidelines uh, just are uh, making it more risky for um, for staff and other pa- for the patients. Indra, I'm presuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, that most of your patients that you're seeing uh, and helping in the hospital uh, are not vaccinated. Uh, do you find yourself going through a sort of mental quandary here that on the one hand, of course, your job is to help everybody, but in the other, do you get upset that people who are unvaccinated now find themselves in the hospital and adding to the workload? Well, I mean, our job, um, you know, our job is to take care of patients when they show up. Um, You know, um, those are are the feelings aside, you know, what my job when I show up to work is take care of the patient the best that I can. But the staffing shortages is just really um, making, uh, you know, pushing all the nurses to the brink. Um, they're already, I mean, this has been two years already. Um, we're, everyone is exhausted, fatigued. Um, while, you know, the, 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 we, we're just, we, we need help. And uh, we really need, um, you know, public to do their part um, to keeping everybody safe in the community and, uh we just would like the governor to resend this um, this new guideline. This this is just putting everybody at risk. Indra Chima works at uh, Ronald Reagan UCLA Medical Center. Thank you. The closest the world has ever gotten to an all-out nuclear war was in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's when the uh, Soviet Union had missiles set up in Cuba to launch against the U.S. in the event of a military conflict. So U.S. got the Soviets to get rid of the missiles. Now a senior Russian diplomat has refused to rule out Russian military deployment to Cuba and Venezuela if tensions over Ukraine, the U.S., and NATO heat up even more. With us is Aaron David Miller, senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a global affairs analyst for CNN. Thanks for being back with us. So uh, they're saying if this heats up even more, uh, they're going to do this. But even the mention of it, I think, heats things up even more. Well, I think you identify it's it's, this is Putin razzle dazzle. He loves this. Uh, He throws something out, possible deployment of Russian forces or military infrastructure in the Western Hemisphere. Um, has every major news network, um, the Biden administration, forced, you know, responding to press inquiries, what are they going to do? What if Putin does another Cuban Russell crisis? 
he's in his element. The reality is that Vladimir Putin has been very cold and calculating in where he tries to create zones of Russian influence. And um, he knows that deploying, he already has a military relationship with Venezuela and a very close economic relationship with Cuba. But the prospects that Putin would risk a military confrontation with the United States in Cuba uh, or even in and around Venezuela, I, I think basically undermines all of his his calculation and his uh, and his risk aversion. I think this is a, a way to get the U.S. focused more on his on his needs to put him at the center uh, of the conversation. But it, but in the end, I think this is what one U.S. official has already described as uh, as bluffs. But why is it that 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 Putin seems to be so good at bluffing? I'm sorry, what was that? I, I was going to say, but why does it seem as if, as if Putin is so good at bluffing? He's really good at this. Yeah, he is. And if you look at his his uh, efforts uh, in Georgia, in Crimea, in the Donbass, in Eastern Ukraine, even in Syria, he, he's shown a remarkable affinity for a declining power uh, to basically oppose U.S. influence together with China. He's a very important ally in the Chinese as well. Um you know, and and he reports to no one. There's there is public opinion in Russia, but he has no Congress. He has no he has no free and open media within certain limits. So he's able to create this sort of um, I, I refer to it as a razzle dazzle because that's exactly uh, what it is. The more important question is where uh, is the U.S. Russian dialogue going over Ukraine, and whether or not there is anything remotely resembling a balance of interests in order to, to diffuse this crisis. At the moment, it, it appears not. And uh, the Russians are now saying there's no need to talk unless the Americans are prepared to read, read from their script, from the two quote-unquote treaties they laid down. There is some common overlap, but not on the first principles. The United States is not going to basically say that uh, Putin will have a veto on which countries um, can join NATO. Uh, they're not going to remove uh, NATO um, military deployments um, from countries like the Baltics or Poland. So if Putin's interested in, in satisfaction on these big first principles, it's hard to see how we're going to get a, uh, a climb down. You could very well see in the end a, a limited Russian move into eastern Ukraine. Um, and I think there's only one human on this planet right now uh, that knows uh, whether or not that's going to unfold, and that's Vladimir Putin. We've put on the table all of these different sanctions and, and, you know, the way people talk about them is that they are pretty devastating. This round, is that enough to, to hold them off, that threat? Uh, I, I think it, it, no. If Putin, isn't, if Putin doesn't feel that he has gotten satisfaction, that there's a way to de-escalate uh, with a sense of honor and, and commitment, that in, in essence that he's gotten something from, uh, from NATO and the United States. And I think he's perfectly prepared um, to uh, have Russian forces um, move into parts of eastern Ukraine. I don't think we're talking about a Russian invasion to take Kiev and create a massive occupation, 40 million people, um, with an with a intense sense now of Ukrainian nationalism and opposition to the Russians. But uh, the thing, none of the sanctions, however severe they may be, including cutting Russia off from, um, from the U.S. financial system through SWIFT, Sanctions on the big banks and sanctions on Putin personally 
we've never been able to identify how to how to find his own resources and tap into his bank accounts. So I think nothing on the table, frankly, is going to deter him should he feel that he needs to move. You know, you mentioned that, you know, Putin doesn't answer to anybody. And I am curious. I mean, does the Russian military, would it, even if it thinks it's ill-advised, is there, is there any ability of the military in Russia to defy what Putin wants? This isn't General Milley saying no um, <laughs> to, uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, no. Uh, if Putin decides that he wants to uh, uh, move the Russian military, whether, again, into Georgia, into Syria, into Donbass and eastern Ukraine, into Crimea, then they'll, then they'll comply. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Global Affairs Analyst for CNN. Thanks for talking to us. Again, more to come on in-depth. Do you take melatonin to go to sleep at night? It might not be working. We'll explore that. No, you know what puts me to sleep? I watch HBO. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, your daily deep dive into some of the more important and interesting stories affecting all of our lives, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So if you can't sleep, a lot of people will go and take some melatonin, staying away from pharmaceutical drugs and managing their sleep. They think, well, the body makes this anyways. It's natural. Just I'll add a little more. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, self-prescription of the popular supplements often leads to over-prescription, and then that leads to powerful effects on you. And who knows, the thing that's keeping you up at night, I mean, you know, it might not be that extra cup of coffee at lunch. It could be uh, sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, disorders that require medical attention. With us now is Dr. David Merrill, who is an adult and geriatric psychiatrist at Providence St. John's Health Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, I know, and I'm sure you do, uh, a lot of people who take melatonin because they think it helps them go to sleep and they take it on a pretty regular basis. Not a good idea. Why? Well, uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so melatonin, as you mentioned, is produced by the body naturally when it gets dark, uh, but it's produced at a very low level. And the amounts that are present in over-the-counter supplements are several hundred, if not thousand times higher than the amount that the body produces naturally. So is that always too much or can some people still take this? I think everybody reaches for it, not everybody, but a lot of people reach for it because there's like a whole shelf at, you know, the Walgreens or the CVS and they think, oh, if it's this easy and available and it's not like, you know, Unisom and that's a drug, well, then it, it must be fine for me. So what is the idea of taking it, even if it's just like go for the lowest dose possible? Is that okay? Right. Well, uh, so the good news is that there doesn't seem to be any immediate dramatic negative effect of taking such a large, we call it like a supra physiologic dose or much more than your body normally produces. So in a sense, that's why we can kind of get away with doing that. Um, also, it's not a sedative per se. It's more a signal uh, to the brain and the body that it's time to go to sleep. It's, it's usually a signal that a hormonal signal that's in concert with lowering of your, your stress hormone or cortisol, which uh, as you alluded to in the intro, if, uh, if you haven't dealt with uh, some medical conditions like stress, anxiety, depression, even if you send the rest signal of melatonin, that may be counteracted by the stress signal of something like cortisol. But for people who take the melatonin, uh, not Naturally, but but through supplements, how much of it 
uh, is the melatonin supplements that are working and how much of it is a placebo effect? Well, let's not forget, placebos actually can work quite well. Uh, so in, in clinical practice, we really want to leverage the power of uh, placebo to our advantage. Um, but I would couple that generally, start with uh, the lowest possible dose, which on the market is about half a milligram. And you kind of do want to be believing in what you're taking. The, the brain is the most powerful organ in the body and can actually uh, help will itself to sleep. So it's not, not necessarily a bad thing that we, we have a placebo response in this case. Some people do feel groggier the next day. They say it takes them longer to wake up. Is that because it is such a higher dose than we're, we're used to? That kind of dimmer switch stays on and we're not quite all there? Right. And in that case, if you're having hangover, even from the lowest available, I would definitely get a pill cutter from your pharmacist, chop it in half or quarter and see if that doesn't help resolve the hangover. Uh, the other thing is, uh, because this is um, a hormone, you probably don't want to use it chronically. You may just use it for, for three or four nights when you're trying to get your sleep back on track. And you will want to be kind of simultaneously addressing these other factors that might be keeping you from having a good night's sleep. Yeah, I was going to say, and we, we alluded to it in the introduction, that, you know, most people are probably going to say, well, you know, I can't fall asleep. Uh, it's probably because I had too much coffee during the day. And, uh, and in most cases, maybe they're, they're right. But there is a danger, is there not, in, in self-medicating with something like melatonin? Because you may be cloaking something that's medically wrong with you that could be even serious. Right. Well, well, the good news for the coffee drinkers out there is, is try as we all might, uh, the data all seems pretty good in terms of coffee's benefits for general health and brain health. We do just want to make sure we're not overdoing it. And, and part of good sleep hygiene is kind of stopping caffeine intake uh, from lunch onward. Uh, though you're right, some people are super sensitive to, to caffeine. It usually has about six to eight hour uh, you know, effect in the body. But some people, the, the, hour can, the, the effect can go on for 24 hours. So if insomnia is really persisting and caffeine is continues to be a part of your regimen, uh, it might be something that you may have to cut back or even cut out entirely. Dr. David Merrill, adult and geriatric psychiatrist, Providence St. John's Health Center. You drink coffee, don't you? I do. Could you go like 24 hours without it? I got off coffee one time and then I got back on. How but long? it took a while to... I don't even have that much. Yeah, like how long were you, when you say you got off it, how long were you off of it? Oh, like a few weeks. Really? Yeah. And you'd it's just, you got to do... If you're going to do it, it's like the slow, like, cup, half a cup. <laughs> slow of, drip. Or else you're going to get headaches and stuff. It's true. But then why did you go back? Because uh, I wanted to. <laughs> what? That's a good reason to go, because oh, I wanted to. I like to. the ritual. You get up, you make... Con that whole thing. Oh, okay. Okay. I buy that. A lot of people prefer to have a doctor of their same gender as a way of feeling more comfortable. But could this practice be saving more lives, particularly in the operating room? That's a question posed by a group of medical researchers in the JAMA Surgery Journal. Their findings uh, may surprise you. Dr. Christopher Wallace is an assistant professor of urology at the University of Toronto and a, uh, con an oncologist at Mount Sinai Hospital and University Health Network. He's also the lead author of this particular study. Doctor, thanks for being with us. What did you find? My pleasure. So this work was uh, really interesting. We first looked at whether that discrepancy you said between the doctor and the patient could lead to adverse outcomes. And, and we did find that for patients who had a uh, sex that was different than their surgeon, the rates of uh, complications and, and death after surgery were higher 
And then we particularly focused on the female patients um, because we found that when we looked in that subset, that treatment with a, a male surgeon as opposed to a female surgeon had a notably higher risk of both death and uh, what we called adverse outcomes after surgery, including uh, readmissions, complications like uh, dialysis or heart attacks. And, and in contrast, the, the male patients didn't really see a difference whether their doctor was male or female. Okay, so it's just for the male surgeons and the, the female patients, right? That's where we get the most adverse outcomes? That's where we see the strongest signal, that's for sure. Okay, so reasons why, theoretically, or what does this tell you? Absolutely. So I think uh, it's important to highlight that the study we've done uh, is an epidemiologic study looking at like 1.3 million patients and just identifying an association. So we see that these things track together. And in this kind of a study, we can't prove why it happens. But uh, both our work as well as uh, other studies that we can uh, sort of reference give us a frame of mind to look at this. And so we firstly should highlight what we don't think is happening. We don't think that these are differences in the OR in terms of technical skills performing these operations. And we have lots of reasons to think this, but one of the strongest is that we don't see differences when it's emergency surgeries, where we do see differences when it's elective surgeries. And that term has been kind of controversial recently with the context of COVID. But what we mean here is pre-scheduled and planned operations. And the difference between these is that there's time before surgery to consider your options a little more, to have some conversations with your surgeon about uh, what's needed, maybe for the surgeon to order some more tests, uh, to try and uh, optimize things before heading into surgery. And so we believe that it's these non-technical processes that are occurring outside the operating room that are probably contributing to the differences we're observing. Well, okay, so you need to explain that one a little bit more. So by that, do you mean that for elective surgeries, there's a different dynamic um going into the planning of the surgery between the doctor and patient, depending upon whether the doctor in this case is a male and the patient is a female, as opposed to the patient being male? Yeah. So, I mean, firstly, I think there's an element of time that obviously differs between these planned elective surgeries and emergent surgeries. And in emergency cases where as physicians, our hands are forced a little more to operate, whereas for elective cases, we have some more time to sit and you know, consider and have a, a more lengthy consultation process. We know from other studies that female physicians spend a bit more time with their patients on average than male physicians do, and that the communication styles differ. So female uh, physicians have a more patient-centered communication style, and that leads to higher uh, patient ratings of their physicians. It also leads to uh, patients of female physicians uh, engaging with their healthcare more, so participating more in screening behaviors and while we haven't proven it in this setting for surgery, we think that these sort of differences in how male and female doctors communicate may translate into uh, differences in terms of the decision to undergo surgery and also in terms of the uh, optimization before uh, and after surgery that leads to uh, better outcomes. Can you teach better bedside manner to the guys? Right. So that is, I mean, that is the end result of what we're hoping to get from this work, which is to start off by showing this association and then diving in with further studies to really understand why it's happening and what those differences are so that we can sort of improve care for all patients, have all surgeons 
uh, improve their care for all their patients. And as you point out, it's likely that based on our associations, we need to target uh, male surgeons. And in particular, we maybe need to target how male surgeons interact with female patients. Um, but I think this work really offers the opportunity to improve the care for all patients treated by all surgeons. And since you're, you're talking uh, primarily right about elective surgeries, uh, could it be, though, that women have what well, they do, clearly in some cases, different kinds of elective surgeries than men patients might? And might that account for some of this? So you're absolutely right. And no study is perfect, but to the best of our ability, we've adjusted for all sorts of differences between the surgeons and the patients. And in this study, we've compared as best as we can apples to apples in terms of surgery. So we've matched them in terms of a hip replacement done by a male surgeon and a hip replacement done by a, a female surgeon. And so we don't think that the differences in the kinds of surgeries are likely driving this effect. Um, we've also accounted for differences in terms of surgeons' experience, their surgical volumes, and difference in, in patients in terms of their age, their overall health status, their comorbidities, and those kind of characteristics. So while nothing's perfect, we, we have done our best to account for those kind of differences, and we don't think that those are what's driving the observation here. Dr. Christopher Wallace, Assistant Professor of Urology, University of Toronto, oncologist at Mount Sinai and uh, University Health Network, also lead author of this study. Thanks for talking to us. This has been In-Depth. Back tomorrow 